Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal, Kyle, and friends. I'm doing a weird official entrance. <laughs> My name is Kyle. This is Crystal. I think I nice think they knew that. You. I think they knew that. I think they didn't think I was Crystal and you were Kyle. Does my like rising vibe make you a little more formal at the beginning of this? No. No. I don't have a formal gear. Like I was trying to do relatively formal and I immediately was like, <laughs> I am being too formal. <laughs> yeah, so it just doesn't it just I just don't have that. Um we have a great guest today. Uh, Super excited. Can't wait to speak to Rose McGowan. This yeah. is a little bit different for us, slightly out of our comfort zone, but that's yeah. a good thing. You know, it's a new kind of conversation with a new person who uh, normally wouldn't be in our lane. She's you know? just a fascinating person and totally fearless. We'll say whatever the fuck she's thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, has had a remarkable life. I mean, starting with grew up in a literal cult that her father and her had to escape from, um, ends up being discovered in Hollywood, goes on to this incredible career, a very, you know, well-known actress, then uh, reveals what happened, how Harvey Weinstein assaulted her, helps launch the Me Too movement, becomes a critic of the movement and of the Democratic Party, which leads to a lot of the powers that be feeling like, we've heard enough from you. That's enough out of you. So um, can't wait to dig into all of those things with Rose. For sure. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it as well. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff that uh, I'd like to talk about, but one that's been stuck in my mind, this came out a little while ago, but I feel like it's, you know, just a topic that will never get old, especially in our lifetimes, for obvious reasons. Uh, there was a World Health Organization study that came out a little while ago that found that um, people who work 55 hours or more per week face greater risk of dying Whoa. from strokes or heart disease. Wow. And, you know, they, uh, hard data to back it up. Um, apparently, it's a 35% higher risk of stroke and 17% higher risk of dying from heart disease. And, they, you know, they gave the number in 2016, 745,000 wow. people died from stroke and heart disease around the world. Uh, 29% increase from the year 2000. So, wow. yeah, I mean, basically, to sum it up, especially in this country, because we're obsessed with work, um, it's actually deadly. If you work more than 55 hours per week, it's deadly. Now, somebody can make the counter argument, hey, there's a causation correlation problem here. Is that really the case? Do we really know if it's directly linked? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a fair critique, but listen, it's not, it's really intuitive to think that the more you work, the more stressed you are. The more stressed you are, the more you'll have physical symptoms of that stress. Yeah. And so I think it's relatively straightforward. I mean, look, the way that you live your life has an impact on how long that life is going to last. Like that's as intuitive and straightforward a connection as there could possibly be. Mm. What are you spending all of your waking hours doing? Is it something that is super stressful and puts that kind of pressure on your body on a daily basis? Like the, the idea that there would be a very direct consequence from that is not crazy at all. One thing I was thinking about with the study is the conversation we had with James Sussman, who wrote the book, like The Deep History of Work. Um, and he talks about how in Japan, they actually have language to talk about work leading to death. Um, they actually have, and, you know, Japan also, there's an obsession with work. There's very long, you know, work hours that are documented, but they like at least have a language and a conversation and a cultural focus on this is a problem. Whereas here, we probably have the exact same dynamic and we just don't talk about it. We yeah. just pretend mm-hmm. like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the question is, what do we do about it? Because, you know, all I can think of outside of just you know, totally reworking the economy from the ground up, starting from scratch, 
just changing the way everything is done. Let's do that. I mean, yes, agree. <laughs> let's do that. But short of that, I mean, there are some shortcuts that can be used to, you know, sort of fix this problem at least a little bit. In Europe, they approach their work-life balance in a totally different way. I mean, it's not even close to how we do it here. Most developed countries, in fact, every developed country except us, does uh, paid vacation time by law. So you get, you know, up to a month time yeah. off every year by law. So it's yeah. like even adults basically have like a summer vacation. I don't know. They're not, not, it's not like everybody's taking it in the summer, but point is you get a lot of time off. Is it Spain where they were piloting a shorter work week yes. and trying that out? I well, mean, that was the next thing I was going to say. Yeah. Four day work week is another way to address this. Yeah. And you can reduce hours slightly in a four day work week. And there's a lot of evidence that output actually increases. Productivity increases because people feel a lot more refreshed when they're at work. And so they're able to focus more and get more accomplished. Right. So there's two pieces of this equation. One is the policy piece, right, which matters tremendously. Like you're saying, paid leave, vacation time, shortened work week. I mean, we've seen this in America as well with, with the institution of the 40-hour work week. That was tremendously important. The other piece is the cultural piece. Mm -hmm. Because even though, you know, we technically have a 40-hour week, you see the average length of the work week continuing to creep up and creep up and creep up. And even more dramatically, when you consider that, you know, previously you basically had only half of the population that was allowed to work. Now you have frequently two income earners in a household. So you're like doubling the amount of time spent at work per family um, in a lot of cases. So you have the cultural piece as well. And that's the part where, and oftentimes the policy follows the culture, right? There's a cultural shift in the way that people are thinking about their relationship to employment and work and thinking about how they want to spend all their working hours. And I am hopeful that there's a little bit of a reassessment happening right now as we speak of people at all levels of the class spectrum basically going like, having a little bit of a, a realization or a rethinking that was forced upon them by the horrors of a year of pandemic, but is making them realize like, you know, I actually liked being forced to have more time with my family and maybe I don't want to give that up. Like I actually liked not having work be as central to my identity or I really, you know, it wasn't worth it to be working at the grocery store for eight bucks an hour and being subjected to like the risks of coronavirus and all these stressed out shoppers. That just wasn't worth it for me. I'm going to make different choices. So I'm actually a little bit hopeful that maybe the most difficult part is the shift in the cultural think. And that might be happening. I would also say that I think um, and this actually is like counter to what I just said about culture leading the policy, because I do think the policy of we're going to send everybody direct checks and make your life a little tiny bit easier during this pandemic. I also think that has helped to reshape the way that we're thinking about government, what we're entitled to, what government can do and how that shapes like how we're spending our waking hours. So my slight disagreement with you is that I think the cultural aspect of this mm -hmm. is largely a facade. I think, you think the, so? yes, I think the reason why people have those hours have crept up and up and up is necessity. I think it's purely economic. I think people need to pay the bills. I think everybody's in fucking debt and they're like, well, what am I going to do? Fuck, I got to work more hours. Mm. And so I think that the second you give people the opportunity of like a little bit more time to reevaluate and maybe change their life in whatever way, 
I think they're going to take it. And I disagree with that. Well, it's complicated to disentangle because I do think that we're very married to this idea of like, you can't be lazy and the like, you know, the work ethic thing I do think is, is deeply ingrained. Um, same author, James But it's a Lesman. rationalization, I feel like. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that people tell themselves when they put their head on their pillow at night. Like, I'm not wasting my life, I promise. Uh, you know, this, I was told it's, work is virtuous in and of itself. That stuff goes deep, though, because you do have a lot of, I mean, for some people, 100% no other choice than to to just to keep food on the table and like a roof over the head no other choice right but there is a pretty large class of americans that could make a different choice 80% live paycheck to paycheck it's the it's the culture that keeps them from hey i could live i could i don't have to have this like i don't have to live in this place i don't have to have this big mortgage i don't have to have all these trappings of like an affluent life um, and so I, I, I disagree. I, I actually do think the cultural piece is important in how people, how people evaluate what the range of options for their life even is. But 80% live paycheck to paycheck. So I would say at least 80% are like, this is what I got to do. Like I need to, I need to pay the bill. So I have to work more hours and that's the end of it. But yes, give that, give those people an option. And I think at least half of them will be like, Yeah. I can do this differently. I should do this differently. Or it'd be nice if you get a UBI check and you can reduce your hours or something like that. I don't think it requires any more convincing, given the opportunity of like, hey, you don't need to work 65 hours a week. You you know, they'll go, oh, okay, no, you're right. I'll work. I'll work. I mean, how many people do you know who are just like obsessively, mindlessly, you know, addicted to their work life? And where it's most people I because, know are miserable at their work life. But I think it becomes it's becomes with so much of community and other like social identity stripped away. It becomes like this is my identity and people cling to it um, beyond, I think, what is even necessary. So fewer people I know in that category. Well, it's can, the opposite. Well, I think that I know. I think only what was that number that we learned? 15 percent of people feel engaged in their job. Yeah. Most people are just like. Fuck, I got to clock I in and clock it. out. But you, I mean, but you see reassessments happening right now. I mean, you see the numbers shifting but in terms of, in terms PMC of. PMC people, not, professional middle class people. Those are the. Yes. The, yeah, those are the ones reassessing. Right. right. And they control culture. I mean, what they say, they control both parties. They control the policy climate. They control what's seen on our TV screens. But they're not the Hollywood. silent majority. That's my point. Is but that- let me. But let me also say though, it's not just the PMC that's reassessing. You also see major shifts happening among working class people who are choosing different lines of work, who are also going. I mean, this is part of why like business owners are freaking out of like, you must go back to work at yeah, your seven twenty-five an hour. imploded because of COVID. Not just did it implode, but grocery store work did not implode. Grocery store demand spiked but they and pay yet you more. have 40,000 people saying I'm not doing this shit anymore yeah so that to me more. is a tremendous yeah. reassessment got to go up that's happening in terms of how people are thinking about their work and their employment and how they want to spend their days so but I, but you know even though PMC represents a minority of the population I hate they that are, term by the way I just hate it they are disproportionate what do you prefer to call them affluent suburbanized douchebags the creative class is Richard, Richard Florida's utter douchebags white collar workers we'll just go with, with utter douchebags yeah. okay well they're disproportionately powerful. I mean, we both know that. Like, so the fact that there is a rethinking there happening has major consequences for everybody. Well, we'll see. I mean, I feel like the big test of that theory is childcare. Mm-hmm. If there really is a, a shift happening and these people really do control politics, it's much more the donors that control politics. I don't think culturally you have a better argument, but it, 
we'll have universal child care within the year, if that's the case, I think. Because if that's yeah, really what they want, they control politics, then they get it. Yeah, but I don't know if that's like, if you're in that class, it's not child care that's holding you back from changing your choices. So I'm not sure that follows. And you're also correct that the donor class like has, you know, a lot of influence in politics as well. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I, my main point is I don't think given the option, I think everybody would be like, yeah, I'm going to fucking work less because most people don't like their fucking jobs. If you like your job, yeah, you're happy working the long hours and it's fine. But if you don't like it, you're looking for the exit door at any time. I'm just not sure people are that rational, but... I mean, when 80% live paycheck to paycheck, it stands to reason that they're doing it out of necessity. They're working those extra hours. So I don't really blame the people and their choices. I blame the system for them being in that position in the first place. So it's just... But it, part of that system is propaganda to people. I'm not like trying to blame but people. But it's not the puritanical era anymore. That's our main disagreement there, is that like you think still, that old school like propaganda. I, do, I, don't, I, do. I don't think it lands anymore. I, I absolutely think it I still lands. Don't. I mean, and it depends a lot based on age bracket. Right. Yeah. The older, so the more likely. The older, yeah. the more you buy into that. And the younger. Authoritarian partly because weirdos. Everybody basically millennial and younger. They've been so fucked by the economic system that they see some of the like yeah. realities of it. And there's less of a buy in that I'll grant you. But I think for older generations, I absolutely think that like puritanical work ethic and oh, you're well, I just, you still see yes. it in our national I, I agree. I agree on that for sure. The older, the more likely they are to, to think yeah. like that, because I just think the older generation is generally more authoritarian in their beliefs. I think, you know, polling data sort of bears that out. Yeah, that, Any that sort of true. like blind patriotic idealism. They're like, yes, how dare you touch the flag the wrong way? Like that that's what they're thinking of. <laughs> you know, it's like family <laughs> and and country and flags and eagles. I love America. You hate it. Like um, that's how these people think. I have some more data that is very interesting about what happened during the pandemic, which is not a surprise, um, but is still like blood boiling and just shows you the way that we were manipulated and lied to during this whole thing as well. So we've got numbers out about CEO pay versus worker pay. And so um, uh, CEOs received a 29 percent pay hike. That's for the average CEO last year, even as the average frontline worker was hit with a 2% wage cut. The write-up I'm looking at is Luke Savage over at Jacobin. And part of what is so, like, that's enraging to start with. Non -su not surprising, but completely enraging that um, this elite group of people getting richer than ever while most of the country is totally suffering. But what makes it to me even more outrageous, two pieces. Number one, a lot of these same CEOs made a big show of publicly being like, I'm taking a pay cut because of the pandemic. We're scaling back. At the same time as behind the scenes, these companies were rewriting their compensation rules so that, look, most CEOs, the majority of their of their um, income doesn't come from salary. It's, salary. A bonus. Yeah. it's all from stock options and all whatever other crap or end of year bonuses get. yeah yeah so they rewrote their compensation rules so that they would end up getting even more than they ever did while they could publicly be like oh we're such good people we're cutting wages and here's the other one that really like extremely pissed me off the hilton ceo was one of the ones that got the biggest pay increases of the year even as I mean, what sector got hit the hard? Like hospitality. So they're wearing, laying off thousands of workers and this person's cashing in more than ever. Yeah. It, I mean, once and for all, we need to totally just bury this notion that we live in 
any semblance of a meritocracy where the harder you work, the further you go. Because, yeah, you have these sectors that were absolutely obliterated because of COVID and somehow the executives are getting pay increases and the workers are getting wage cuts. And this remi- this really does remind me of the Great Recession because I don't, I don't know how well you remember this, but it was like they would argue, the CEOs would argue, oh, you still have to pay me my bonus right. even though the company was bankrupted and you need a government bailout but you still need to pay me my bonus Uh, because you need to retain the talent uh uh-huh talent my ass cheeks you tank the fucking company talent why do i need to retain a loser but they got those those bailouts they got the bailouts and then they got the bonuses and you know very famously at the time they were doing the bailouts there were no strings attached so the government rushed in, bailed out all these companies, and they would take it, no strings attached. There weren't rules in terms of how much they could leverage the company or how much they could pay in, in bonuses. So it's, it's in many ways, it's an anti-meritocracy. Yeah. Everybody fails up. So all these executives who make these terrible decisions, who don't know what the fuck they're doing, they're mostly bored with a silver spoon in their mouth because they went to, mm-hmm. daddy got them into some fucking Ivy League school. Yep. And, and that's what ends up happening is that the CEOs get... you know, increasing pay and the workers get fucked. And it is absolutely infuriating because think of the people who had to get up and go to work in the heart of a fucking pandemic where they're out there with people every single day with a flimsy ass fucking mask. By the way, nobody covers their eyes, even though the virus can get to your eyes. So these poor people, so many of them getting COVID and they're getting a fucking pay cut as the virtue signaling CEO is pretending like they're taking a pay cut right. and they're actually getting a pay increase. Well, and then think too about all the smoke that was blown up our ass about essential workers and how we're so, we we honor them, we're so proud of them, et cetera. While you're putting them on the front lines, while you're cutting their pay, listen to this stat. So that, that Hilton Hotels CEO, Christopher Nassetta, his pay was 1,953 times his company's median worker pay. Nah. Almost 2,000 times while you're out there being like, our essential workers are our heroes and they make the country run. And all of this, that's what's really going on. I'm becoming a Stalinist. (laughs) Throw these people in the fucking gulag over a thousand times more than your average worker. I honestly, we need a new law, and the law needs to be just like uh, Professor Richard Wolf said at the Madrigan thing, yep. right? They mm-hmm. have a rule, I think it's like eight to one is the most you could do or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I like that idea. I'm down. Let's do you it. You want to see, listen, I get it. Some people have a harder job and they have to do more work and it's more hours. I get it. Sometimes, not it. Yeah, not but like everybody not should get paid the guy. same. It's like the person no, cleaning no, no. the floors. No, yeah. I know. I know. But my point is, it's not like everybody needs to be paid the exact same. Right. But eight to one ratio seems reasonable to me. Here's another quote that may make you move that down to five to one ratio. Um, Nasetta himself, that CEO, failed to meet designated performance goals, but the company's board ultimately concluded depriving him of a massive payout would have impaired the award's ability to retain key talent and align our management team with the actions needed to drive long term performance. So there you go. I said I was becoming a Stalinist before. Wrong. Pol Pot. (laughs) I'm getting more and more extreme the more I hear this shit. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. And again, Mm -hmm. what's what's the bullshit we've been fed from when we were kids? 
harder you work, the further you go. If you just work hard and they'll look out for you, the system will look out for you. And I always, even from when I was in fucking high school, it didn't take much thinking to realize how much bullshit that was. Because one of the hardest people I ever knew, hardest working people I ever knew, guy by the name of Kevin, he had his own apartment at a very young age, complicated family life, whatever, right? Worked three jobs, could barely pay the bills. At this shitty little apartment. The truth is, the further you get go down the income spectrum, the harder and the longer hours that people are working yep. and the more difficult jobs. I mean, that's just like, couldn't be more clear. That's right. That's right. I mean, I in some ways, I wish we did live in more of a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. I want to give people the basics and then have a, more of a meritocracy. But we have functionally an anti-meritocracy masquerading as a meritocracy. And man, is it infuriating. We've got, you know, you, if you're in the right club, you're going to be good. That's right. If you're not, mm-hmm. you're fucked. Indeed. Um, Time to bring on our phenomenal guest, Rose McGowan. Um, so let me get all of her accolades here. So she's a New York Times bestselling author. Her book is called Brave. Um, she, of course, longtime actress, former actress, um, charmed. I think she's best. She was in Scream. I mean, we were looking up her hit, like the number of movies. Oh, it's endless. Roles it's endless, is yeah. insane. Um, she's also obviously a great activist, um, helped to spark the Me Too. She actually kind of rejects calling it a movement, but the mm-hmm. Me Too conversation or whatever you want to call it. Very very thought-provoking, um, very ex- just extraordinary person. Um, we are excited to welcome Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan, it is so great to have you, to get to talk to you in person. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you both for having me. Our pleasure. Um, just give people a little bit of an update. What have you been up to this year? What has this year been like for you? What space are you in? I'm in generally a pretty great space. Uh, The year has not been as hard for me as it has been for many others. My years previous to this last year were were extremely difficult, some being very publicly difficult. And this last year has been a lot of healing, but also, you know, when I feel able, you know, uh, showing my claws and uh, scratching and punching at the establishment, because why not? They deserve it. So uh, I remember the first time I went to L.A. I said to my buddy, I was like, I'm the only person who's coming here. And like, I'm even I don't even want to come here. I'm reluctant to come here. But I was going because I was going to be on the Young Turks and I was going to do the Joe Rogan show. But I actually take that back. I don't think I was the first person that reluctantly went there. I think you might be. I think you were probably (laughs) the one like, okay, I'm here, but I don't really want to be. So my question is, talk to me about Hollywood, because I'm an outsider. I don't really know what goes on in there is like the view that. Hollywood is sort of like this insular little elitist click circle. Is that accurate or is it more, you know, is it okay once you're there? Uh, I do not think Hollywood is okay once you're there. I was discovered and I it was standing on a street corner and the woman approached me and knew my friend I was standing with. Two weeks later, I'm starring in a movie that doesn't really happen. Mm-hmm. I went to Sundance. I was on the cover of like British GQ and all these magazines like before the movie even came out. And very quickly, I realized I was trapped on the wrong side of the screen with a lot of the wrong kinds of people. Mm. And what is interesting to me is that um, the right in the U.S. sees Hollywood very, very clearly. Mm. They're pretty much 100% right. Where It's not so much that it's just elitist, it's, it's a cult. And, I, mm-hmm. and I've talked about that before. Uh, I grew up in one. I have like a quadruple PhD in, in, in that 
kind of situation. And it's, it's how the corollaries between how they operate is in like the words we use in business for any business deal for, uh, how to announce on a set that if I said, uh, to you, at your business, uh, this, that now we're going to have $150,000 penalty. This is going to cost us. The way we would say that in Hollywood, which has our very own language that does not compute or transfer to the outside world, just like a cult, I would say, I've got a girlfriend. Her name's Grace. And everybody would say, ah, that means we're going over lunch. We're delayed. Da, da, da. So it's going to cost the company 150 grand or more, right? Mm. So it's, it's it, it, even in our, in our business dealings and our contracts, nothing translates to the outside world. So the people inside of it, the majority, the vast majority are trained and especially the famous ones, the people are like, why aren't you speaking out? You know, one, they're cult members. Two, they, they understand the cult rules. They, like anybody, if you're in a cult, a sect, and you're in the middle of nowhere, let's say you're somewhere in Texas, but you leave that cult or, or you question it, you stand to risk losing everything you've got, mm. which usually in a sect, you don't have much. But now in Hollywood, you do have quite a lot, right? And it's a weird thing. Like, uh, the more money you have, it seems the more scared you are of losing it. And a lot of people that are successful in Hollywood, at least in, in front of the screen, come from not a lot, right? And it is the message, don't step out of line, little girl. Uh, you will never get hired again. And, and they're right. I mean, you know, Harvey Weinstein tried his best to blacklist me, and I, I had to take the scraps of what I could get for many, many years. But these people kind of do it to themselves. If they all came forward at once, they could they strengthen numbers. They could clean it all up. But I, mm. I feel like They've hoisted their own petard, and I I feel like kind of proud of my kind of you know being an entree into like this is what it's like this is the reality of it and and you can see in the low Oscar ratings that people more and more are this is this is this was all an illusion and propaganda yeah completely um you know it's funny though people on the right although most of the time they see hollywood very clearly the moment there's like one c-list star who likes them they're like <laughs> yeah. we love them they're amazing <laughs> they get a starring role at the rnc so even though you know 95 percent of the well, time <laughs> they get it the moment that I, they feel like they've got their entree yeah, then they Trump. jump all in too on like hollywood's amazing and what they say really counts and we should hand them lots of cultural power uh, yeah, they're cults. They're, you know, they that's a cult too. So it, it kind of cuts both ways. It, it's bizarre. Like the democratic cult sees the Republican cult clearly yeah. and the Republican cult sees the democratic cult clearly, but they can't see themselves much like Hollywood self-reflection, not their forte. Right. Rose, could you talk a little bit more about, you mentioned that you, you literally grew up in a cult. Um, and you were a young child there. I mean, when you're a kid, you just kind of accept whatever is around you as just like, oh, this must be normal. This must be how things are. What was that experience like? Did you have any awareness of like, there's some weird things going on here? What was it like to adjust to not cult life when you left? Just talk a little bit about that piece. Thank you, Crystal. Yeah, I grew up, you know, people focus on the children of God, the sect I was born into. My father led the Italian chapter, and at one point at its height of Children of God, it was worldwide, it was over 130 uh, 
communes all over the world. And they, we had our own vocabulary. Everybody who was not us or was outside of the walls, uh, you were all called systemites. Hmm. And um, for me, the part that the, the media does seem to talk about whenever they speak of children of God, they're like the crazy sex cult. Da, 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 da. But they don't focus on the fact that it was a doomsday cult. So hmm. I was born thinking I was going to die. Wow. And I didn't know what 1993 was, but hmm. it didn't sound good. It was coming, you know, and, and that's a, a psychology um, that I, hasn't really been explored when people have discussed this specific cult. But I can say for myself, uh, the reason my book is called Brave, that was my father's nickname for me, the brave one. Uh, he said I was born with a fist up and he noticed it start, starting around age two when no was my favorite word, he used to lecture me, why can't you be a child? And what he meant by that is, why can't you stare at me with worship like your sisters and brothers? Mm. I've always been me, just in miniature form. I write in my book, I realize I've made people uncomfortable starting around age five uh, in some strange like cognitive dissonance causing way where adults which is, I was very unable to... Um, basically agree with someone's illusion because they realized at a young age when they were consistently and constantly harassing me, have you let God into your heart today? And I would say no. Hmm. But I reasoned to myself, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God. I just didn't believe in their God. Because when you have such a micro version of what the outside world gets in a more watered down version, I think it's a lot easier to see it clearly. And I just grew up basically being a, a, in opposition and no, uh, this, I won't accept this. And so I was the black sheep, of course. And I lit a barn on fire. I write about that in my book. I lit a wall of Bibles on fire. I would just torch things. I was like, nope. And it was out of this kind of rage that nobody would listen to me. There were a lot of children. There was no, I didn't know who my mother was specifically until we got out of there. Uh, you were raised like everyone like cousins, aunts, but they weren't. It was multinational and people from everywhere. Some very nefarious people, some nicer. And the kids, it, it, the two times I went outside of those walls before I got uh, sent to the U.S. Um, between zero and ten was to perform on the streets, witnessing. And hmm. I, I just saw. But then later, when I got out, you know, the big thing that revealed the cult-like system in the U.S. to me and and in the greater world was that I got sent to a military prep school there, you know, on a military base. And that was, they changed my name the first day from Rosa Ariana to Rose without asking. They hmm. forcibly held my hand on my chest to lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance when I didn't wow. barely speak English. Uh, wow. It was psychological torture uh, in, in, in a very aggressive way. And what I realized very quickly was that I made them uncomfortable also because of things like they would give me homework and I would write, no, thank you. I do not need your history or indoctrinations. <laughs> give me an F. Thank you. <laughs> you remind me of my I terrorize right every teacher. Yeah, I was like, no. So um, you sort of touched on a little bit there that you see aspects of cult-like behavior in Democrats, in Republicans, even, you know, going to a military school, you, you see it as well. You grew up in a cult cult. What characteristics is it that, like, epitomizes that, and what's the connecting tissue with all these things? Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, th really, at the end of the day, if you are 
like I would say America overall, I, you know, I, I, I tweeted once and a lot of people got mad at me, but I said, America is the scariest cult I've ever been in. <laughs> mm. And, and it, 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 there's both macro and micro levels of it. And, and I've said it before, but when you're serving a master that is not serving you and you're staying in it out of fear, fear that you're not even aware you have, like the way the media in concert with Hollywood, in concert with the Pentagon, CIA and their directives, the way they work in lockstep with their, their propaganda and disinformation and the massaging the way people should think, uh, propagandizing, like be scared of Mexicans or illegals, be scared of this, be scared of that, be scared of the outside world, which is why so few Americans have passports, because I I think they've been indoctrinated into being terrified of the outside world, which is exactly what a cult does. Hmm. Exactly. Same thing as Republicans, Democrats. I went on Fox News two weeks ago. It for a former Democrat, felt like I my blood was hot. It felt bizarre, like my cells were moving differently. It was like, but the mm-hmm. fact that I hacked the system enough to get on Fox News to basically say or say, you know, Republicans are in a cult, Democrats, I believe, are in an even deeper cult or in you know, and it, it's it's um, or maybe they're both equal. But I I find the left so much more objectionable in a way because I can't see my enemies as clearly and, and the others yes. can't either. Yeah, they pretend to be on your side and then they stab you in the back. Right. Yeah. And there's more and media. The- I think there's more media conversation, too, about the cult-like aspects of the right. And there's very little on the on the Democratic side. It's just like they follow the science and they You're trust right, yeah. the truth and the facts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no, there's nothing cult-like going on there. The one thing I'm curious about, Rose, is, you know, what is it about cults that people find appealing? Like, is this an mm. inherent trait in human nature where people just want to be like, spoon fed this is reality and everything else is is scary outside like is that a deep part of human nature do you think what led your father to you know become the the leader of this sect and how does that apply to how you see a lot of americans going about their lives in a very unquestioning way yeah i think my father i know he did it well you know i tell the story in my book um he put lsd in his commander's water cups whoa uh, and acted <laughs> like father like daughter um, <laughs> <laughs> in my blood but he acted it was like two months before the end of the vietnam draft and he acted literally so insane they were taking anybody at that point but we're basically like, get him out of here and he served time you know uh, for that stunt and immediately upon getting out, he went to California, of course, California, and met a man named David Berg. And so my father, though, was very much a product of his time in the sense, but he was also really otherworldly in that he hated the system so much. His dad was a, a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, a dyed-in-the-wool, like, America first, you know, and a, a big wig in the Navy. You know, he... He, he was a lifelong Navy man and, and big in his own little world. And that is a cult. I mean, military is a cult. The military industrial complex, they all, it's like, if you look for the definition, just Google definitions of a cult, draw the parallels to what you might be in. And I think Americans, and that one of the things that is always kind of, I think, misunderstood, people are like, they're lost people. I'm like, no, they're trying to escape you. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a comfort 
in having answers. And sometimes people would prefer any answer, even if it's the wrong answer, to saying, I don't know. To the unknown. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm going to use your terminology for this because I watched a great interview of you the other day and I like the way that you phrase this. Is there, in Hollywood, was there the one pig monster or is it like he's not even the worst and there are people just as bad as the pig monster? Well, he was definitely the worst. He, uh, unless you count a director who has famously and repeatedly been accused of child molestation, who I know uh, ran basically the best, the biggest pedophile ring in Hollywood. And wow. Jesus. Um, so I would say there's the the male on male side of it that's not mm -hmm. explored. And every studio, they would just move that director around. Very famous director. Oh. Hello, man. And, uh, you know, many allegations. And then the studio would each set about destroying whoever the victim was coming forward there. If you look back at Brian Singer's history, uh, he did a movie called At Pupil in the 90s. And there was a a, a lawsuit where, um, alleging, and, and I believe there's a big settlement involved in this. And of course the parents all had to sign NDAs. There was like a, a big shower scene with 11 year old boys. And there was all footage taken that was played on the home, you know, the home circuits in Hollywood. Jesus Christ. And it, it, it's well known. Everybody knew. I knew, and I'm not, yeah, that wasn't my world. That wasn't a party I was being invited to, you know, but the, the, the one, the one who was thanked more than God at the Oscars was Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so he was the pinnacle of it there. Previous generations, I'm sure it was another. But right. Like, it's not an aberration. It, it is not. And everyone's like, well, the women would have slept with them for parts. Yeah, maybe. But that's not what they like. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, it, that, that's not what they want. They feed off humans. Yeah. And they eat very special people, and then they set about to destroy them. And so Hollywood, it, it is, it is a morass. And for me, there were there was the pig monster, as, yeah, uh, you know, calls call it what it is. Um, but yeah, there were there, were, and like in most people that have been victimized and the, and then have to become survivors of that victimization, there's the one big one that stands out. But there's a lot of other. I mean, the amount like there is a. Um, I will allege this here, you know, there was a, a CAA creative artist agency agent that I met with, or he was a former one. He had just left there and was starting his own organization. I was 40, maybe 41. And I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel and I was like pretty much only doing voiceovers at this point. My career had been just so destroyed. And he had a meeting with me at the Beverly Hills Hotel in, a, in kind of the most private area that you could get. And it was 7 p.m. And uh, he was showing me pictures of his wife and newborn kid. Talking about my future, if I wanted to work with him, but mm. kind of being vague about it at the same time. Mm. I stood up to leave. He grabs the back of my head, jams his tongue down my throat. Says, I've always wanted to do that for years and years. And I thought, I am 40. Still? Wow. Still. You know, what disturbs me so much, Rose, is that is I had no idea how systemic the abuse yeah. was. It, mm -hmm. You know, I almost, I, I thought, well, there's, of course, it's Hollywood, there's got to be some abuse. But the thing that was astonishing to me is that, like, 
you know, the person has an agent or a manager who sets up the meetings and then you have the hairstylist who looks the other way. And then you have this person who's aiding in this way. And that really shook me to my core because it's like, yeah, everybody's sort of aiding and abetting the worst possible crimes, you know? It's not sort of, it is actually fact. I was there. I mean, for me, the management company that I was with, uh, I turned to after like the day that uh, Weinstein assaulted me, the management company, the head of this very powerful management company at the time, he said, uh, God damn it, I just had an LA Times expose about him killed. He owes it to me not to do this. I, <sighs> whoa. And then a woman reached out to my former assistant a couple years ago and said, I was the one they hired to pretend I worked as a criminal attorney who had an inside track with LAPD and whether your case was fileable or not, but I am an actor and they hired me to sit down oh. with you and straight to your face. Wow. Oh and then the God. female manager that orchestrated the meeting and I've gotten a lot of blowback and it's very sad. She had uh, for years, a lot of before, even before uh, she ever worked with me um, problems in the mental health arena. And um, she subsequently killed herself during the oh. Weinstein match. And I got blamed for it by her family. And I, I'm sorry if your daughter was a human trafficker. I wish that was not the case. But she got the facts, the evidence are this. She was part of that management company. Her old assistant uh, has verified an email and to other journalists, like, yes, I was on the phone during all the calls. And she got a million-dollar-a-year job for seven years with Weinstein afterwards almost immediately. So just do the math. And I wish to God none of that was true. Mm. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be here today having to talk about this, hopefully. Yeah. You know. Well, and, But it and, is, like, if you go back, sorry, if you go back to Shirley Temple, a famous child star from the 1930s, in her autobiography, she, she was very careful not to ruin people's childhoods. And that's the tricky part. You don't want to destroy people's love for a project you've been in or anything like that. But so in her autobiography, Shirley Temple, a child, like who started when she was like two, yeah. um, had a quote in there that said, I sat on every lap in Hollywood. I sat oh. on every man's lap in Hollywood. Oh God. And then she had another thing about Daryl Zanuck, who was the head of Fox studios, a studio she built basically from the ground up and their number one earner. And she said when she turned 16, she was sent into a meeting with him, but had been warned if he takes his shoes off under the desk, run. <gasps> oh, oh my and God. He, and he took his shoes off. Wow. This, this makes me so feel like it, all it, the it, Epstein stuff, stuff like Je from the Jeffrey beginning. Epstein wasn't an aberration. Like well, there's probably eight Jeffrey Epsteins in politics too. Well, you and know? That's, that's part of the thing that I keep thinking about with, with Weinstein and with Epstein is like people knew, I mean, even after he was convicted of sex crimes, you've got Bill Gates. Fucking Bill Gates, Another right. of the most, you know, elite okay. and wealthy and well-known people, not just in American society, but around the world, still associating with this guy, still protecting this guy. And so what I wanted to know from you with regards to Harvey Weinstein, with regards to Hollywood, like... Is it that the system is set up to protect powerful people or does it actively elevate people who are just abject predators like Harvey Weinstein? Both. Mm. Both. I, you know, came out very quickly um, right after the Weinstein news broke and I went after creative artist agency CAA, um, the biggest 
agency in town and I called them human traffickers repeatedly. So they very quickly kind of in response, smartly, they formed Time's Up. Oh. Where did they meet? The mm. AA. Mm. Who are they? Anita Dunn, Biden's like campaign chair, like all of that. It's all tied together. Anita Dunn was the head of Time's Up, then goes over to Biden. It, it's all so sick. And, and they were smart. And when they did that black dress stunts, it was the Oscars or Golden Globes. I can't remember. They're very smart. They The directive was for each nominated actress to take uh, an activist as their date. And what they did was effectively take all these activists and stick them through the glamour treatment. Now you're palling around with Oprah and you're partying and you're all wearing the black dresses united. And it was a very smart move by Hollywood. It effectively neutralized every one of those activists who would have maybe risen up against them. But at the same time, maybe those activists wouldn't have because they don't have the insider information. They didn't. I came in it when people think you are just going to be an actress and that your illusion is theirs, that you want the fame like they do, that you're not really there gathering data and information to bring the stupid system down like I was. They will say and do anything to you. I had to eat so much dirt. People would sit next to me at Hollywood parties, you know, and be like, get any good Weinstein scripts lately? Mm. Oh, my God. That's like, I mean, for years, people come from the streets and say that. I mean, everybody was in on it. And like Epstein and like possibly Bill Gates and like all these super predators, you know, that it is it seems like they are more comfortable elevating evil, to which I would say it was like Jack Dorsey on Twitter, like and and the tech bros like shades of that same thing. Like, why do you protect evil? The only way we're ever going to be clean is to stop aiding and abetting. The only way the good guy or human can come up is if you actually clean house and do it seriously. But believe me when I say CAA, that agency, you know, they would have uh, young women called pocket clients or young boys, you know, and they wouldn't be on the record officially as their clients with the agency, but they would send them to a meeting with, say, a Weinstein or maybe an Epstein or maybe, you know, and this is, uh, that's hypothesis on the Epstein stuff. But the people that needed feeding, the people that needed that human trafficking supply chain to come their way, right? So what happened is a young woman would come back traumatized, like this just happened to me in, in Harvey Weinstein's hotel room, and that girl would be made to essentially disappear. And then um, Harvey Weinstein sometimes, quite often, would make a million-dollar payout, but then he had to pay his board about $3 million in penalties every time he had to make a million-dollar payout. So that's human trafficking and profiting. Uh, the agencies would then call and say, hey, now you owe it to me to hire Gwyneth Paltrow for this role. Or now mm. you owe it to me to hire this director. Or now, you know, I want this Oscar uh, campaign backed by you. But that's oh how it works. Whoa. Wow. Rose, talk about his political connections because he had deep political connections. Yeah, that is, you know, I bought. And there's certainly truth to this. For years, the party line that Hillary was just persecuted for being a strong woman. And there's that there's, of course, there's deep misogyny and, and that that's just a knee jerk reaction. But then there's also the reality. This is a very bad, bad human being, in my opinion. She and her husband. Uh, I mean, Weinstein was in bed to the highest of the highest politics. Obama's daughter interned for Weinstein, my rapist. Oh. Two to three months before the New York Times article dropped. If you don't think Secret Service has a dossier on that man, you are wrong. But it's okay. She's untouchable. She's safe. 
he won't do it to her. Wow. Wow. So there, there are levels of protection. And, and when um, Hillary Clinton's spokesperson shut down the NBC expose by Rich McHugh and Ronan Farrow, that was at that point 90% finished. And I was the first one ever to go on camera uh, with an, an audio with, you know, my charge, not allegations. They were true. I was there, sadly. And and that they it was one call from Hillary's spokesperson. And wow. uh, Weinstein sent the heads of NBC News and the NBC and uh, the head of uh, Comcast, um, I believe, uh, magnum sized bottles of Grey Goose as a thank you. Yeah. Holy shit. But the, and this is what the deep, the, the entree into Hollywood for so many of these politicians on the left was Harvey Weinstein. He was the gatekeeper. Hmm. Wow. And uh, Ronan talked about some of that in his book, how he was also threat. He was trying to get a sit down interview with Hillary. And of course, the spokesperson was saying like, eh, well, we'll have to see what happens with this story, whether you're going to get your sit down interview or not. And the number of journalists that just like, you know, collapsed to that instantly is disgusting. That's basically how we get the media complex that we ultimately have. Um, what was it like when you did come forward publicly what was that moment like? You're, you know, you st- you're, you're an integral part of starting this huge movement, vitally critical conversation. You're made time person of the year. And then the more that you talk and actually express your views, the more that the media turns on you and sort of makes you vilifies you and turns you into this enemy. Just talk about that whole trajectory and what that was like from your perspective. Well, another thing that Ronan Farrow uncovered in an article called Army of Spies that he wrote for The New Yorker, which is an incredibly well-written article, and, and uh, is that's how I learned that there had been, you know, Mossad spies hired to infiltrate my life and steal my book. So when the expose came out and the news broke on Weinstein, I had already been terrorized for years by journalists that Ronan then uncovered. I was, I had suspected, I was like, what is happening? I would go to an event. The next day, I didn't like even going out of my house because any paparazzi photo of me, anything, it would be the most savage placement of it in a media outlet saying like, everybody from blacklisted from everywhere, from like Vanity Fair to the New York Times to... Perez Hilton uh, to trash and, and the inquire all these kind of people and they were all in on it. So what he did for years, Weinstein, very carefully, he would pay off journalists, say, I'm going to turn your story into a feature film. Ah, here's my hit list. Rose McGowan's number one at the red line through her name. You ever see her? Destroy. And so wow. that was how I was perceived already for many years before the allegations came up. Their job was to consistently and for years have the party line. She's crazy, unhinged, uh, whore. That's, 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 and I, and it's just such a boring, I mean, can we get after centuries of that? Can we start something new, please? (laughs) And so I was exhausted. I was writing my book for three years. I was writing brave and behind the scenes, I was being terrorized. And I, my boyfriend at the time broke up with me. He's like, I'm being followed everywhere. Um, and, and now I later, like there were drones circling my windows every day, cars following me, trying to drive me off the road. My headlights were stolen out of my car in my garage, tracking devices placed inside. There were bugs in my house. I had it swept for that. It it is a, it was a, I was exhausted when the news broke. I had to harness every ounce of my energy for the fight that I knew would be the fight of my life. And my thing, um, me too came out the hashtag about a week 
or so after the Weinstein news hit in the New York Times. But my thing was always the cultural reset. I was like, let's explode some knowledge. Let's break some brains. Let's think differently. Let's be better. We have to just back up and think differently because the way society is going is sick and it's not working. And for me, I had a much greater and bigger agenda than sexual assault harassment. That's the flaming spear tip I wrote in on. But I had a lot of people that were trash that needed to be taken out. And I, I set up, you know, I knocked out, it was actually Business Insider were the only ones that noticed this. They were like, someone in the future is going to study Rose McGowan's business moves because four days after knocking out Weinstein, essentially, I knocked out the head of Amazon Studios, who had already been under investigation for a year privately for sexually harassing his number one producer on his number one show, a female. Um, stuff like that. I tweeted at Jeff Bezos, which, you know, of course, then got me shadow banned immediately. But Bezos' attorney called me within like hours of my tweets at him and Two hours later, Roy Price uh, was out at Amazon Studios. Now, my thing is, it's that what people don't get is that these are the people putting thoughts, images in your head. It's coming from their point of view. And when you sit down and turn on Netflix or click on a movie or a TV show, your brain is open. You're like, ah, I want to put my brain here and let it all come in and be taken mm -hmm. away somewhere else. And my point is like, these are the wrong people to be giving you the mirror to look into. I know them. You do not want them in your head. So my book is very much I write it from the perspective of uh, what if the product could talk? What if the chemical could tell you everything that's in it? What if the cigarette could speak? I am that product. This is mm. not a tell-all, but tell it how it is. And what I found out is that the media does not like it when you tell it how it is. Now, there, New York Times' 98% readership is Democrat, are Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, and they will not go after Hillary. They're not going to go after anybody. I mean, they, they did in some ways, even with their reporting, like they, they could have gone so much harder. Mm. Ronan went a lot harder and deeper and, and with better writing, I believe. But they, the, it's like they still dance around all these things. Like David Boyce, who was Al Gore's lawyer, uh, and Gore v. Bush, who lost, who was, um, pro, you know, representing the pro gay marriage side in Supreme Court, which won. Wonderful. Um, but then he worked for the New York Times and then also hired Black Cube Kroll and another investigative firm to terrorize the reporters there as well as me while he's representing the New York Times. The New York Times like did a light rebuke and never sued him, never did anything. Wow. I'm suing him in a federal RICO case right now. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get pushed through trying not to get dismantled because there's so much. So the Me Too hashtag came about and then kind of everyone started calling it a movement. And the movement was that there was what Tarana Burke did that was so great is give us a communication tool. That's happened to Me Too. Never before has that happened. But it's never been, I believe, understood by the media or given its due for being what it actually is. The movement, and I often felt, besides the millions of women and men that just came up and were like, I'm here, this happened to me too, I, I count. Um, I felt honestly like I was out there alone swinging at the monsters. And when I started supporting Tara Reid, Biden's accuser, you know, I've been now 100% blacklisted from the New York Times and liberal media. Mm. <laughs> and that's how I feel about that.
Yeah. So we feel very similarly, Rose. <laughs> yeah. So that's so that was the final straw for them, Rose. That's when they turned on you. Is when you when you started supporting Biden's accuser. That's just that's so that's so like them. That's exactly what I would expect oh. from them. Um, well, yeah, I was dragging I was dragging them for sitting on uh, the article they they did on her, and then I was dragging them for not releasing it. Then of course they waited till he was the nominee to release it. And then, of course, uh, Anita Dunn, who was Harvey Weinstein's, uh, you know, one of his associates at that time, who did the Time's Up thing, helped actually write the article about Tara Reid. Wow. That was exposed. It's 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 insane. The levels of aiding and abetting criminality or alleged criminality. Anita Dunn involved with Time's Up the organization you referenced, which is supposed to be about supporting women, helping them come forward with their stories, et cetera, et cetera. So Tara, who doesn't know about these connections and just actually thinks that she's going to find support for like coming forward because that's what this is all supposed to be about. They say, no, 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 we weren't talking about you. We don't want to hear from Mm. you or any other accuser of Joe Biden. Yeah. I had There's a been moment, Rose. I'm sorry, go ahead. Of, no, you go ahead. There's been a huge, uh, sorry, my plug, uh, misappropriation of funds with Time's Up. And there's only been a couple tepid articles about it. Whoa. But they were one of the most heavily donated to, um, you know, groups ever. The fastest raise in donations. And that's because so many people in Hollywood and donated to them so they could get cover, I believe, and say, look what we've done. We're against this. But none of those funds, very few of those funds have gone towards actually helping anybody. And they try to represent me or they said, we'll help you in your case against Weinstein, David Boyce, Lisa Bloom, the biggest sexual harassment attorneys out there, Gloria Allred's daughter, who terrorized me uh, for years um, Hmm. and said in the memo that is in the New York Times uh, reporter's book, she said, I, in a memo, uh, when she was auditioning for the job with Weinstein to destroy me and his other victims, I know the roses of the world. I can Mm. help you take her down. So the the complicity machine was so big. um, And it just goes together. It's exhausting. And it, 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 they gaslight us because people think they're the ones telling the truth because there's more of them. That's not the case. What was your light bulb moment? Sorry. Yeah, no, and it, I'm I'm actually really glad that you said that because it it feeds into my light bulb moment point, which is they deny, deny, deny until it's impossible to deny it anymore. But then what they do is they just try to have a fall guy, and so it's no longer it's like, hey, don't look any deeper. But we got the one fall guy, the one bad apple we got here, the bad guy, and that's exactly what they mm-hmm. did with the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. The big story was like Bernie Madoff. We got Bernie Madoff, and he's like the one guy. Meanwhile. You know, Bernie Sanders says it. It's like it, fraud was the business model on Wall Street. So it wasn't the one guy. It was the entire system was the problem. Yeah. You know, and, and you reminded me of a great quote. Um, Malcolm X said, if you aren't careful, the media will have you loving your oppressor and hating the oppressed. And that's basically exactly what happened. Um, talk to me about what went on with you and Twitter, because they've like censured you a number of times, right? Such a dick. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm very like joke about it, but it's exhausting and it's not fair. They deactivated my account four days after I 
uh, after the Weinstein news broke. Wow. And I, and they said it was because I tweeted a private phone number. I was talking about Ben Affleck and I, he was one of the first people I saw right after it happened to me. And he looked straight at me in the face and said, God damn it. I told him to stop doing that. Uh, Whoa. And, and then released later during, you know, the whole crazy media onslaught, this completely lawyer legally, it, someone else wrote the statement for him. Believe me, there's no way Ben Affleck came up with that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it, it's just all bullshit. And I always wonder, how do you support, how do you live a lie? Like, how do you protect that system? Right. So the thing is, is like the amount of gaslighting it takes to trick people into believing. Like, I remember when Enron was falling, that was right around the time they put Martha Stewart in jail. We're tough on white collar crime. Mm. It, it's and it's been done for like Shalane Maxwell is a very bad. From the looks of it, creep of a human. But there are so many other creeps in that orbit. But by putting her there, she'll take the hit, as she should. But many others should be taking it. And even the yeah. judge, like, who sealed, like, he, they said recently, right, that uh, it would be too upsetting for people or something like that for them to be able to share the truth of uh, what was going on in the wow. trials. But whereas, like, the, the, the DA that never filed charges against Weinstein then. Uh, after a, a woman, Amber Batalyana, had a tape of him trying to assault her, she went undercover for the police. The head of the sex crimes uh, unit there, I think it was Linda Fairstein, said she's called her one of Harvey's girls. I'm not sure. No, m- not Linda Fairstein. Sorry. Another one that was in that job later. But she said, oh, it's just one of Harvey's girls. And um, the case was dismissed and not taken forward. And then, of course, David Boyce, Weinstein's lawyer, Bill Clinton's lawyer, Al Gore's lawyer, makes a big donation to Cyrus Vance's re-election campaign. And it goes forth from there. So I had very little faith, the trial, whatever, like I, the whole system. It's the system. The system is a cult. Because why, like everybody in a cult, like what I grew up in, if they really thought about it or I think had some separated time, unless they were true pedophiles on their own, we realize this man is sick. What he's saying and tricking us into doing is dangerous and acting against our own best interests. And that is essentially, if you think selling out your soul is acting against your own best interests. that is essentially what all these people do. Oh shit. I forgot you were asking me about tech and Twitter, but it all went into the same thing. I apologize. <laughs> so that got deactivated. Then there's a 24-hour women boycott Twitter protest. So I got reinstated, have been shadow banned ever since. With the massive amount of media in the last, you know, five years that I've garnered, uh, just fighting and fighting and fighting. Uh, my numbers on Twitter have gone up, I think, like 4,000. Okay. Whoa. 4K. Wow. Um, wow. On Instagram, on Facebook, I, I put on that I was doing a live stream debate response to the last Trump-Biden debate. Half an hour later, my account on Facebook's deactivated. Oh, my God. Then, Twitter, then it's reactivated. I mean, the higher people I know that I'm like a case, a project. Like, there's a project manager, I think, specifically for me at this place. <laughs> like, if I tweet about Bill Clinton, and I have now, say, about a million followers, because it won't get past that, uh, they it gets six likes. Uh, How is that wow. statistically possible? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that does not recently make any sense. took me off Twitter again, saying I had published a private and intimate moment without consent. It was an art piece of a Bill Clinton lookalike getting a massage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, by a British, I remember this. British act, uh, artist named Alison Jackson. 
And the thing is, it's like, I was like, not only are you stupid, Twitter people, but you're total liars. And that there are people on there that can say the nastiest, most disgusting things, violating their policies, but nothing happens to them because they're Democrats. Hmm. Right. Because they're, and I am neither, but I'm neither. Their views are in lockstep. Yeah, their views support power, basically. So they're no threat. So it's fine. They can say the most disgusting things or endorse, you know, war crimes happening in Israel or whatever's going on. Um, Rose, what do you make of the state of the Me Too movement or whatever you want to call it? I mean, one of the things that's been distressing to me is we've had a few isolated incidents where bad actors have weaponized it to smear people who aren't predators. I'm thinking in particular of Alex Morse. Um, mm. I, you probably followed this this case as well. The Intercepted, their reporting on exposing what was going on there. He was accused in these very vague terms and very sort of like homophobic way of inappropriate relationships with college students. Well, it's then revealed and, and all these left groups who want to stand by their principles, they immediately back off their endorsements. He's sort of thrown under the bus. He's challenging a guy who's one of the worst actors in the entire Democratic Party, Richie Neal, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, very powerful guy and totally corporate sellout, like like I said, one of the worst actors blocked there. reducing drug prices. Yeah. Single-handedly blocked the reduction of drug prices. H- horrific, horrific person. So it comes out before the, the primary that he's challenging in him ends, thanks to good reporting, that this was all an orchestrated, invented smear campaign to try to destroy Alex Morse, but the damage had already been done. And like I said, a lot of progressive groups and progressive um, politicians had already sort of thrown him under the bus. Do you see those as isolated incidents? Do you see that as a burgeoning problem? What do you think of the movement in general and where it's kind of ended up? Well, to me, a movement is people out in the streets. It is people with, uh, like, headquarters, you know, even for a nonprofit, like people setting things up, people, you know, marches, protests, digital, physical. There was none of that. Yeah. It was me and some others out there smashing over and over and taking the hits and, and having every single interview where they end it with Harvey Weinstein says it's consensual. It's a big smile, right? <sighs> And and that's a bullet, right? I'm like, you could have just said he denies it, but yeah, you had to go with that. Hmm. So it is, it is, they are lockstep. It is weaponized. It was weaponized against Kavanaugh. I don't know the truth of the Kavanaugh situation, but me too, that was the point. I knew it was weaponized when it was time's up. Right away. Yeah. Ah, shit. Here we go. Because they're going to co-opt it. And they put a pink icon on Twitter for me too. I'm like, thus erasing 49% of the population that a lot of whom also suffers sexual abuse and has no voice, males and boys. Uh, So why is it pink? It's, it's every step of the way. It's, it's kind of made me nauseous and I always got labeled and I had to just deal with it because my book came out with the rise of the hashtag and the articles that I hope set up and play off each other to get one out. All this work I'd done got kind of tidal waved because the media needed a goddamn name for what was happening. Yeah. And the weaponization of it is no different than smearing somebody for being racist and having it. I mean, you can't prove what's in someone's head. But if you're going back through their timelines or histories and the problem with the progressives is even with 
Alex being proven that this this was all bullshit, that it was weaponized against him, much like Assange, if you go deep into the story, Julian yep. Assange, free Assange, by the way. And um, that's what they do, and they will keep doing it. So if you, if you get labeled a racist, a turf, you know, anti-trans, you get labeled this, like everyone moves away from you really quick, even when you're vindicated, they're not going to move back close to you. They're yeah. wimps. They're yeah. everyone's in cover right now. And every, and, and the, those in power, I mean, honestly, if it wasn't Nancy Pelosi, do you think if I was in the Capitol building during the BLM, uh, people out in the streets marching when Nancy Pelosi put, uh, I think like, uh, I'm not Kente sure which cloth. country. Thank you. Kente cloth. Yeah. Uh, and took a knee. If I had done that, how do you think that would have gone down? Mm. Yeah, they would have came after you for it. But with her, a lot of people were supporting it. No, nobody said anything. It, I mean, yeah. other than people the right kind of cringing because it's, <laughs> it's like there are other ways to prove your allyship and let that – it's their knee. Okay? Yeah. So – it, it, it all goes together, the weaponization and, and using the tech, the heads of tech to weaponize against their enemies, you know, uh, against the, those they want to silence. It's a really disgusting system right now. And it's a really toxic climate. One of the reasons I don't live in America is just like it is fundamentally too fucking stupid for me. It exhausts me on a cellular level every day to deal with people that are not aware they're in a cult but behave like you just tasered their brain and let them know they are in a cult and they just smack, ah, I can't handle it. It gets exhausting. It gets exhausting to be misunderstood. It gets exhausting to be shadow banned. It gets exhausting to be terrorized for simply trying to help humans be smarter, think differently, not just about sexual harassment and assault, not just about Hollywood, but about the greater system, the power structure and the lies are being sold. There, there was a very famous video of you in an interview that I loved where you're asked about Alyssa Milano and I think you call her a lie or something <laughs> to that effect. Um, tell me about that relationship because I don't know anything about Alyssa Milano other than you and her were in charm together. Yeah. So I protected, I feel like people's childhoods, you know, a lot of people as children watch that show and I, for years, had a, every interview about the show was always like, do you hang out with Alyssa after work? <laughs> like, do you hang out with your coworker when you go home? No. Uh, but I had to protect, I felt like I had to protect a show's legacy and um, this like kind of illusion. I'm very proud of the show, very proud of the work that both of us did to give other people joy. But personally, the one mistake I made in that ABC Nightline interview was I said, I think she's a lie. <laughs> I know she's a lie. I know she's a lie. I know does, this person with no veneer. Does she like toe the, the, the Hollywood line? Well, her husband was a, until recently a huge agent uh, at CAA, Creative Artists mm -hmm. Agency, representing Joe Biden, um, amongst others. And then he jumped ship recently to... Uh, a, a, a Trump, big major Trump backer who now backs his new agency. So that's who Milano's husband's in bed with, but ethically that's fine. 
there's no, there are no ethics. There's no, there's no actual knowledge and feeling of um, pain. You know, psychopaths are born, sociopaths are made. I think with her, the answer lays somewhere in both. <laughs> wow. Did you like acting? Like, did you enjoy the work? No. But I considered what I was doing undercover work. Very quick, but I happen to be good at it. I had a weird gift to be able to leave my body and let something else take over. And I was like, you know, with roles that I did, like in Scream, which is like my second or third movie, Harvey Weinstein, I'd never met him at that point um, or even seen what he looked like, but he was my boss and I always like talked about. But that movie was Joy to Make. And that was kind of my one, one or two good experiences I had, but the rest, it was like psychedelic. I would look around and think this is you're all insane. You're all participating. This There's an abusive director throwing things at the cameraman, screaming at the actor, she's a whore, smashing my arm with the camera, causing two years of paralysis. And everyone just looks down, glad it's not them. These are criminal acts. Would you put up with this? Like the Scott Rudin thing that came out. And so for me, acting like about him abusing his assistants, he's a huge producer, won many Oscars in Hollywood, a gross, gross man. And people would laugh. They'd be like, oh, they would get, I, like, I remember an agent that was in front of me hung out the phone and said, oh, Scott just threw a phone and cut his assistant's head open. Time to take another one to the hospital. <laughs> That's Hollywood. So for me, acting was so, so affected by the truth behind the scenes. So what I say is what happens behind the scenes happens on screen, happens in the world, because it's normalized by sick people who want to trick the public into believing that their weight is actually the way. She's amazing. I mean, yeah. Rose McGowan's amazing. <laughs> incredible conversation. You know, um, I really wasn't sure what to expect going into the conversation with her. She's the first person who we talk to. Usually whoever we talk to has a lane, and that lane could be political, that lane could be something else with Chris Ryan. It's like sex. Yeah. You know? Or like drugs with or Carl drugs Hart. Drugs with Carl Hart. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So everybody's got a lane. But with Rose, it's like, okay, well, she was in Hollywood. So maybe ask her about that part of her career. Now she's getting a little political. Maybe ask her about that. But she just dropped a bomb on us. Well, and it's so interesting how a lot of how she's able to see these systemic trends and cults and whatever is because she was literally in a cult. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when she sees the signs around her, she's like, I know what this is. I don't know. I know why you're thinking this way. I know why you're like so protective of the set of insane views because I've, I've seen this exact same thing and you have zero self-awareness of how you're just subjecting yourself to this group think and will literally not see any other perspective whatsoever. It's crazy that they really tried to ruin her because of what she experienced, what she knew was going on. I mean, it seems like a classic case almost of like, here's a whistleblower. Yep. And she's going to tell the truth about what happened with Weinstein and what happened with, you know, the way it works. She was talking about the CAA people who are in on it. And, yeah. the, you know, remember the the thing like the time times up or me too, they were wearing the black dresses and they went to the Oscars or whatever it was. And I yeah. remember at the time she was like, this is all fake. Like you're doing this shit because you're trying to show the world like we're good people. We do good things. Look at me. I'm wearing the thing that's supposed to be. I'm not part of the problem. I'm, right. And then it's like behind the scenes. They're like, they're the ones who are covering up everything the that all knew of them everything do. that was going on yep. mm-hmm. they're part of i mean what she said about the agents and the pocket clients and the way that all mm. works like i never heard anyone 
lay right. out that explicitly. And so the other thing that you see really clearly with her is like, okay, so they, you know, protect Harvey Weinstein, protect Harvey Weinstein, protect Harvey Weinstein as long as they possibly can. Ronan Farrow, who I worked with at MSNBC, you know, loses his job, funds the film shoot himself and has this because he himself is a Hollywood insider Mm. and also like a wealthy guy on his own. Like he's able to kind of access these circles, blow this thing open on his own dime through his own persistence, knowing that this has killed his career at NBC and, you know, probably limited his career prospects, other people. So he's able to do this. So now they can't deny it anymore. Right. The floodgates open. And then they essentially, they use Rose for as long as she's useful. She's made Time Person of the Year. She's held up. New York Times, everybody loves her for a minute. And then the moment that she goes off script and is like, by the way, this isn't just about Harvey Weinstein. And let me tell you more about what's going on here. Let me talk about all of the people that are implicated. Let me tell you about Hillary Clinton. Then suddenly it's like, cut the mic, no more interviews, kill the Twitter account. Like, we need to not hear from this person anymore. We got the one piece out of this that we were willing to hear right at this moment, and we don't want to hear any of the rest. And so that's why you see, and then Fox News will have her on, and they only want to hear the part of what yeah, she Democrats has to say. Democrats bad, that's all they want to hear. That's about Democrats. Yeah. The rest of it, they don't want to, they don't want to hear that part e- either. They'll just amplify the part where she says Democrats are, are in a cult and completely ignore that she's like, Republicans are equally in a cult, by the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just blowing the whistle on the systemic problem and they don't want it to be a systemic problem. They want the one person who's the fall guy and they want the rest of it to go away. And the fact that they try to do the thing where like, oh, me too, time's up. We're leading the charge on this as they were actually part of the problem in facilitating all that stuff, it sort of reminds me like the U.S. yelping about freedom and democracy and human rights as we continue to arm Israel as they bomb babies in Palestine. Right. Or or like uh, like, um, when we talked to Abby Martin, she brought this up. It's also like the way that Black Lives Matter is is co-opted. The parts of it that are like safe. The CIA, right, the CIA right. using the woke language. The CIA takes yeah. intersexual or like Jamie Dimon kneeling before a bank vault or like Rose brought up Nancy Pelosi kneeling in, in Kente the Kente Glob. cloth. Yeah, like I'm down for the struggle. Right, and it's like Bitch, n- shut up. You just erased all of the actual challenge to power. You erased all of the systemic critique of capitalism and all of that for the pieces that you thought you could be okay with and you could put forward as like, see, we're not part of the problem. We're good. We're good people. We're so progressive and all of that, hoping that the rest of it just actually goes away. And so when Rose talks about the founding of Time's Up as an explicit effort to basically defang Mm -hmm. the entire conversation, I think that's incredibly revealing. And it's like a pattern that you see repeated over and over and over again. I mean, it happens with everything, though. And that's the depressing thing is that organizations immediately become corrupted. You know, I mean, I sort of witnessed this with Justice Democrats when I co-founded Justice Democrats. It's like the second that it was no longer Jank and myself, it very quickly became like the things what we were looking for in the candidates, not they weren't necessarily necessarily the leading things anymore and it's just like you got to stick true to the original mission if you really mean it and in in this example with me too and time's up yeah if it's really me too and really time's up i want you blowing the whistle on weinstein i want you blowing the whistle on epstein i want you blowing the whistle on trump and bill clinton and hillary clinton and and everybody in the fucking click on the entire system yes 
enables and, as she put it, that elevates predators like this, elevates them and then protects them and makes sure that no one ever sees what's going on. And the number of powerful institutions that are involved in enabling that system. He basically penned into his fucking schedule on a daily basis or a weekly basis, like three to four rape time. You know what I mean? And he had the agent and the manager and everybody else. You know, getting these unsuspecting women who just wanted a career in acting like, do you want to meet him at the hotel in the lobby? And then at the last minute, they switch it. Oh, now he wants you to meet him in his suite. Right. Ah, go fuck yourself. The fact that this shit went on. For so long and so many people knew about it. That's why I asked her, is is he the, that's the one that she calls pig monster, Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. Are there other pig monsters? Or is it just the pig monster or like how does how's what's the breakdown like exactly? What do you think about that question of why people want to be in a cult and whether that's like an innate part of human nature where it's like we're so invested in like we want to have that meaning. We want to have that community. We want to have that like, you know, there's also also with a lot of people like this deep longing for the daddy figure that's just going to tell you what to do and think and be. People people don't do well with cognitive dissonance. People don't do well with saying, I don't know. People want answers. Yeah. And oftentimes people would prefer getting wrong answers to the correct answer or just being agnostic on it. And so that is definitely a thing that's deep in human nature. It's why everybody looks for answers all over the place about everything. Yeah. You know, something happens, you're interested in it, you try to find the, ooh, what's going on over here? That's part of human nature. So yes, it stems from a fundamental insecurity um, existentially. So if you're, if you're, insecure existentially about your place in reality, where you belong and everything, it is very nice to latch on to an identity and a group, even if that group is wrong, because then you can get community, brotherhood, a a sense of meaning and purpose. Even if you're doing stuff that's wrong and you know it's wrong, if you're feeling the camaraderie in the process, that's a powerful thing for human beings. You can justify it. Justify anything. I wonder if uh, in modern society, because we've had this sort of like breakdown in community and there's a lot of of that existential angst and search for meaning and place and like, where are my people and what is this life all about? If that makes people even more susceptible to that like cult-like behavior, because I do think there is like deep in human nature, this desire for belonging, this desire for meaning and a discomfort too. I mean, it does. It feels good to feel like I've got, I know the answers. I've got the answers. I've got a roadmap. I know where to be on it. I know what, you know, what to say to this question. I know what I think on everything. This person is telling me what to, that's actually a very comforting feeling of course. in a lot of ways than to just exist in the uncertainty that is the the actual reality. Yeah. I mean, think about it to your point about like the, the father figure, the authority figure that people yeah. want. If you ask somebody who you view as a leader, should I do X, Y, or Z? And the person's like, oh, you do Y. You like that a lot more than if the person's like, Hmm, I don't know which one you should. Let me mm, Let me I'm, tell you about X. Let yeah. me, here's the the you positives prefer, and minuses. We've actually y. done studies on this too by the way, and yeah. people prefer to have fewer choices. Yeah. When you give people an endless variety of choices, mm-hmm. it they get system overload and they don't know what to do. Yeah. If you just say this is the one you're getting, people be, "Oh, cool." Yeah. And you there's know? actually a lot of of control that comes along with that. They do that study of like what you're talking about is they'll give people in the grocery store like 20 different laundry detergent options 
and they'll feel whatever choice they make afterwards, they'll feel like less certain or less yep. good about the choice. Mm-hmm. And if you give them three choices or two choices, then they feel much more confident right. in their decision because you've just like limited it down. So that's a real tool to manipulate people. You just give them three choices. This is actually what they did to Trump with the like military withdrawal shit. The gen- generals would just come in and be like, okay, we can up the troop levels mm. 100,000, 10,000, or 5,000. What do you think? And nowhere on five, the table is, is like, let's get out all together. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. But because of the way humans think about choice, and I do think that that's an important tool of like corporate control and media control is you only present this very limited range of outcomes. That's the Overton window. And if you keep it simple, that makes people feel good about it. Like, oh, I had these simple choices and this is the one I chose and now I'm sticking with it. Well, that's the whole idea of the Overton window is like, here's the spectrum of debate that we view as reasonable. So take Israel-Palestine, the thing that's going on. I mean, you have the, the left... Fringe position is don't give them the $735 million more weapons. Right. That's the left fringe. So in other words, the left position is not don't give them the $735 million, cut off the $4 billion in subsidies that we give them every year, support BDS, sanction them. Like, that's not even in the scope of the conversation. Yeah. The left flank is just don't reload them as they're bombing babies. Well, and even beyond that, like zooming out from that, the range of acceptable discussion on Israel has long been like the the left edge with an American conversation about Israel has been you you Zionism is a given. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. The left edge is you shouldn't have the illegal settlements and like, yes. you should follow the Oslo mm-hmm. Accords. Like that's that's the left edge. And I think what's been really different about this most recent moment is that you're actually starting to have now in mainstream discourse Maybe having an ethno state is not good, period. Right. Yep. And that's never been allowed before. So, yeah, that control and manipulation of choices is a lot of how you get the political system and the fucked up society we have. That is correct. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, for watching, however you're consuming this. Of course, you can support the show on Substack. It's five dollars a month and you get the video and you get it a day early or you could continue listening on audio, whatever you prefer. That's free for everybody. So, um subscribe and remember that we were going to do we're going to do the uh, behind the scenes video for people who subscribe that's right so i mean i miss that it's gonna be incredible we need to pass barry weiss i don't know if we're gonna pass barry weiss but we need to pass barry weiss and so that means we need a hell of a lot more subscribers so get get on on that guys you know what to do all right love you (laughs) see you next week